Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. The Curious Podcast is brought to you by me. Just kidding. This podcast is brought to you by just me. I, you know, it's just fun to say stuff sometimes. Uh, welcome back to the Curious Podcast. How is everyone? Hope you've had an incredible week, an incredible, an incredible life. Really, hope you're just flourishing and thriving in ways you could you could have never imagined, and maybe also in ways that you have imagined. Because sometimes it's nice to fulfill the things you've thought about, or if you're Canadian, a boot. What's going on in the world? France just won the World Cup. Congrats, France. I extend to you the French version of Mazel Tov, whatever that is. Magnifique. Congratulations. I don't have a great French accent. Anyway, good for you guys. Well done. What else? What What else is going on? I'm going on a trip. Going on a trip. I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm recording this on Sunday, so then... I'll edit it in tomorrow, and then and then the, the pod will go up Tuesday. But anyway, I'm going on a trip Monday, going to the East Coast. I'm uh, going to be in Boston, going to be in New York, a lot of anticipation. I'm not the traveler that, uh, that other people are. What can I say? Very nervous, very in fear, very projecting. Here's the thing, guys. I don't like to be uncomfortable. And look, the truth is, I got a little bit of scratch. You know what I mean? I work hard. We're going to fly nice. We're going to stay at a nice enough hotel. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm uh, I'm not staying at a hostel. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, I'm not fucking 19 going on a, a teen tour backpacking through, you know, some random, I'm sure, beautiful country. No, I'm going to... You know, I'm going to do it up nice. I am a Marriott Rewards member, okay? You want to talk about being a grown-up, being an adult? Yeah, I accrue many points, and I, I like a good reward. But nevertheless, even though it will be as comfortable as possible, and I am I'm quite lucky... Look, I don't don't send me the tweets and the texts of how lucky you are to be... I know I am very, very lucky to be traveling. Not everyone has the... Uh, has the means, the opportunity, and yet my neurotic, self-centered mind likes to go into quite the tizzy when I've disrupted its routine, when I've, you know, when I, I've thrown a, a wrench in the plan, doesn't love it, you know? I anticipate the the airport, and will we get there on time, and will someone have planted some sort of weapon on me so that when I go through TSA, all of a sudden I'm detained, you know, uh, indefinitely? I remember one time I was going through TSA and I don't know what happened, but they swabbed my hands and I set the alarm off. And I'm pretty sure that that swab sees if you've been making a bomb or something. And I, I think like my hair gel had some organic material in it that that is, you know, probably uh, a brother or sister of TNT. And so friggin they detained me. They I remember that it set that alarm off. And they looked at me like, oh, no, because I think they kind of knew. I don't know if they, you know, like recognized me. That's a douchey statement. I, I, but I don't know if they kind of like knew who I was or they just sized me up real quick and was like, this guy's not trying to bring any terror to our planes. But so they knew that I wasn't like an immediate threat. And yet 
they were like, well, we need to now go through a procedure. And I got brought into a scary ass room and I'm, all I'm worried about, of course, I'm like, am I going to miss my flight? Is this going to take a while? I mean, luckily in those situations, I'm not the guy. I'm not the one who's going to like erupt and make it all about me and, you know, just scream out at the injustice. I get that there's a protocol. I understand they want to keep us safe. I understand that, you know, eventually in life it stops being why me and it becomes why not me. Fucking write that down. You know what I mean? Put that in your journal or your diary or I don't know where you write things, your iPhone notes. Listen, I'm not judging. Just, just you know, commit it to memory because th- these are the treasures. These are the gems of phrases that I have picked up over my years, 31 of them. You know what I mean? I listen. I keep my ears open for some of those, some of those spiritual, you know, just uh, d- treasure gem, gem treasures. That's what I do. Because I fucking need it. I need a little bit of, uh, you know, reassurance throughout the day. You know, I need to know from other people that sometimes life, you know, while hard and challenging at times is worth, is worth experiencing. Because sometimes, and I know you're the same out there, and I don't mean to project, but here we go. Sometimes you're like, man, this is a crazy ass world. And what's it all about? What's it for? Why do it? You know what I mean? Because in 60 years, all new people, I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to be a downer when I say that, that, you know, eventually we're all going to die and not probably not be remembered. Uh, This got morbid, but go with me here. You know what I mean? I hope that it is, you know, that not only does it enlighten you, but it empowers you to know that you are, you know, you are entitled to live your full life and that... It's all, it's all good because it's always been good and it's always going to be good. You know what I mean? And what you do today eh, might not affect the course of history. And that's okay too because this is just an experience. None of us are that important. I'm not talking to you, Jay-Z and Beyonce. We all know you guys are important, but you know, us over here, making podcasts for the people and the people who listen to podcasts, which I am one of, we are, you know, we are important to the people that we are important to. And that is enough. Okay. Good old uncle Josh Peck is here to tell you that you are enough and you can go spend, you know, thousands a year with some psychotherapist to help you get through. God knows that I've seen one for 15 plus years who I love. Shout out my doctor. I'm not going to give out his name because I know there's some weirdos out here that'll try to contact him. But he's just a beauty and I love him. But, you know, when it boils down, you know, when we really get down to the nitty gritty, if I had to distill our 15 year experience with each other down to one, you know, thing, I would say it's Josh, you are enough. As you are, you are enough. Because it's all, it's got to be that. Because if it's anything else, it's like, you, it can't be like you are enough, but if you climbed Mount Everest with, you know, three toddlers on your back, then, then you will really be enough. It's never going to be that. You know what I mean? It's always going to be arbitrary. It's always going to be, 
I don't know if arbitrary is the right word, but there's like, there's never going to be a clear set path. You have to accept the nuance, the, 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 the vagueness of it all. That's not a word either, but just go with me here. You guys get it. It's not set in stone. Be the water, not the rock. What what am I saying at this point? I don't know. You guys get it. I believe you get it. I, I have to believe you get it at this point because otherwise, what's it all worth? Anyway, I'm going to New York. I'm going to be in the East Coast. It should be nice. I'll be there for a wedding, which is lovely. I had a wedding and it gave me a whole new appreciation for weddings because, you know, you're single and most of your life as a man, and I'm only speaking for myself, but you fucking feel like weddings are bullshit and a big waste of money and, you know, and, and like this weird colloquialism, like this tradition that we all partake in and yet know in the back of our head it's like kind of a waste of time or we're just doing it for our wives or what have you. And then how wrong I was, how wrong, wrong I was. Because my wife gave me an incredible, beautiful wedding, gave us, but you know, I, my, my brother gave me the best advice before, and he's got like a thick Boston accent, and he gave me the best advice when I told him that I was getting engaged, and, and he said, Josh, I'm happy for you. Now, here's all you need to remember. It's not your fucking day. So you give her whatever, whatever she wants. And you just stand back and let her be happy. And it was the best advice ever because it's exactly what I did. I didn't get involved in the details, in the rigmarole, you know, in the, the, the nitty gritty. I just let her have her day and she made it unbelievable. Let me tell you, you should, you should have been there. A wedding like this, come on, small, small, intimate, outdoors, beautiful you know, Jesus, that's my phone. We had three different times, three different types of protein. Jesus, God, this is fucking unprofessional. We had three different types of protein. It was unbelievable. We had a, a steak, a salmon, and a, we didn't have a chicken, but there was a pasta. Trust me. You know, and it revealed to me how beautiful a wedding is and how incredible it is to get married in front of your family members and the people who love you most. And to make that bond, that, that dedication, that, uh, that agreement in front of God or whatever you believe in and the people that, that you love and in front of each other and saying like, you know what, I'm going to give this all I got. And let's see what happens. <laughs> let's roll the dice. Let's buy property together, make some kids be, you know, semi-annoyed with each other many days, but also love the shit out of each other. And uh, and I'm so glad I had that experience. And I can't believe this tirade has not stopped yet. But I'm I, there's like a catharsis going on here. I feel great about it. I hope this is okay. And if you guys don't like it, well, I, you know, what, what, what am I going to tell you? You know, you, you knew what you were signing up for. You know who I am. Anyway, today's episode... Vincent D'Onofrio, an acting god, a mensch of a man, just a good person. I, I, 
I feel like he's he for me he's one of those people who I feel like we're closer than we really are. Maybe it's just because of the effect he's had on my life and how much I respect and appreciate him. And also he turned me on to his acting teacher, a woman named Sharon Chatton, who's changed my life. And I'm just an incredible fan because he's a real deal. He's an actor's actor. He's all about the work and not the bullshit. And that's what it's all about. And that's what turns me on about acting and has made me want to do it since I was 11 years old. So I, it, was, it was so lovely and nice of him to spend the hour with me and let me pick his brain. And, uh, and I hope you guys enjoy it because it was, it was really special for me and I hope it's special for you. Enjoy my friend, Vincent D'Onofrio. My buddy Dax does one too. I know. He just started. Armchair, yeah. I know. He's killing it. Yeah. It's like in the top 10 podcasts. Oh, it is? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. He's had some good guests. Yeah. I mean, when you can get, you know, Katie Couric and right. his wife and Ashton Kutcher for right. your first couple, it's not yeah. bad. It helps, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, of course. You remember the first, the first time we met? Was it at my house? Or? Yeah. Yeah. And we had... I think you had bid on like a school yes. fundraiser yes. dinner. And we had a cook at the house. Not just a cook. The head chef from Rayo's right. in New York. Right. Like I'm talking the greatest bowl of pasta maybe I ever had. Yeah, it was really good. It, yeah. was, it wasn't messing around. No. No. Yeah, no, I remember. Yeah. You're from Brooklyn? I was born in uh, Bensonhurst, yeah, Brooklyn, yeah. But I was raised there and in Florida. Okay. I, uh, I went to school mostly in Florida. Right. And then came back to New York right after high school to study acting. Right. But I spent, I was, I was close to my grandfather, and so I spent um, uh, like every, every summer, I mean literally every summer in in Brooklyn with my grandfather and I had, you know, I had regular friends there and stuff, you know. And your father or your grandfather's Italian? Yeah, everybody's Italian. And that's, that's where the, that's where the tribe of people in Bensonhurst, right? I mean, it was all Italians then. That area was, yeah, that area was Jewish and Italian at the time. And there was a Polish section Mm. and, uh, and was it, I mean, it's not necessarily the most peaceful area. I mean, it was tough then, yeah. right? Yeah, it was tough, yeah. It was a bit, it was a little crazy. The thing about that's different from now and then is that if you did something wrong, which we did a lot of, like, because we were, you know, delinquents, and we, <laughs> we didn't have any, you know, we were poor, too. Yeah, knuckleheads. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, is that the cops would bring you home rather than arrest you. Right. Because they knew that if they brought you home, you were going to get in enough trouble, you know. And, but, it, it, you know, that, we're not talking about, like, armed robbery and stuff like that. We're talking about, like, stealing a car or, you know, stuff like that. You, you wouldn't get arrested. You, like, you would get brought to your house and say, this dope was caught <laughs> right. in a car. Petty offense. Because and... the, the, the whooping you were going to get from, yeah. from whoever was going to be just as bad. Yeah. And do you ever go back to Bensonhurst like now? Because I feel like it's the last of the gentrified section of Brooklyn. Like it's still not completely yeah. modernized. You know, we sold 
they sold my grandfather's house. My dad and his sister sold my grandfather's house after he died. And so there hasn't been a lot of reason to go over there, you know, mm. um, especially 18th Avenue and 65th Street. It's, the, it's such a, a specific area. And in my mind, it's very specific because my, my grandfather was the only thing that brought me there. Right. So it's, no, I don't, I don't go back. But, you know, he was, my grandfather was all over the city. He, he started a drapery company, company called General Drapery, which was on um, 16th off of 6th Avenue. And that's where I worked when I first moved to New York, to like uh, delivering and hanging drapes for, for him, him and stuff. Yeah. And, yeah, my, my grandfather owned a, a Schmata factory in Jersey. Oh, okay. so like old, but I feel like that's what most of our grandparents yeah. did on the East Coast in yeah. the forties, fifties, sixties. Yeah, yeah. And and so, what? How old were you when you moved to Florida? I guess what happened was my I I was my parents got divorced when I was nine. My father took us to Florida. Uh, we were all born in New York, and after my birth, we went to Florida, and then. My parents got divorced when I was like eight or nine or something like that, and we moved to Hawaii because my mother was raised in Hawaii. Wow. Yeah, because her family went from Italy to New York to Hawaii, and my grandfather opened a chain of uh, Italian restaurants in in Honolulu. Still around? I don't think so. No, they were called Rocco's. They were. Uh, it was the first uh, Italian and fried chicken. I love it. <laughs> there at the time, yeah. Because you imagine he was like, "What? What are they missing in Hawaii? <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. I know what they need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And and my dad worked. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force, and my mom was a waitress, and that's how they met. You know, she was a waitress at his at my grandfather's restaurant, mm. and that's how my dad and my mom met. And but but then so we went to I went to elementary school in Hawaii for a little while, and then when my mom was got back on her feet after the divorce and stuff. She moved us back down to Florida because we still had the house there. And, uh, um, you know, I lived there and I had, um, my, my mom remarried to my stepdad. who was a, he's a great, he was a great guy. He passed away, but he was a fantastic man. And, uh, you know, he basically cleaned my act up. He was like a really, he was a firefighter. He was the really very, very big in my life, this guy. And, uh, I gained another sister and an older brother and, uh, I grew up with them in Florida, mm. but, Still, every summer, it was New York. In South Florida? In Hialeah, yeah. And, or, and what part? Which is near Miami. So, because I lived in Boca for a bit, and yeah. it's, it's interesting when you think about Florida, it's like truly different factions, right? Because yeah. South tends to be, you know, insane Cuban influence, uh, left-leaning. There's yeah. such an embrace of like every type of culture there. And then there's sort of mid Florida, which is Orlando, which unless you're going to Disneyland, why are you there? Right. And then North Florida, which is like the bottom of the Bible belt. Yeah. So growing up for you in South Florida, what was it like? What were your influences like? What was it? Very Cuban and very um, black and, you know, so, and country, you know, it was a mix of country Western and soul and Cuban music and Cuban food and soul food and, you know, boring old uh, white food, you know, white yeah. people food. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, 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 and being, you know, and, and having a lot of, uh, you know, and having an Italian mother who, you know, 
who you know cooked Italian food. So it was like a it was a mix of a mix of things. And you know, I had a gang of friends from Florida, and we used to get up to no good there and stuff. And it was a my influences were not academic in any way. They were more uh, based on on the street, you mm. know, and uh, and I was in kinda, what way. Do you want to say? Well, just running I mean, around. It's just that we used to get up to no, I mean, you know, we would just get up to no good. You know, we were right. constantly fighting and constantly, um, you know, constantly getting beat up and constantly fighting back and constantly beating other people up. And you know, you know, there's a lot of those kids didn't survive. A lot of those kids did stupid things and you know ended up dying. You know, from back then, and, you know, they were just idiots. You know, and not- basically killed themselves with with their stupidity. And not to project in any way, but was it just sort of like sort of the kids that you ran with and, and a bit of a victim of circumstance? Or did you ever realize later on you were like, ah, oh, I was probably trying to fill this part of me, this hole inside? Or Well, my mom, before we got married, is when all, before my mom got married, that's when all of, it, all of my stuff started because my mom um, had to work constantly to support she had three kids. She had, I had two older, older sisters and me. So she had, she had to support the three of us. So she was constantly working, like all the time, a waitress. So we were left to our own. And so there was no, she, she, she didn't push us towards education. Or, In fact, nobody in our family was pushed towards any education. We come from a very blue-collar, you know. And uh, so what happens when you're not pushed towards education? You try to learn and... Other ways. Other so, trades. Yeah, other trades. <laughs> right. And you end up on the street. And you end up, you know, being adventurous because you're not reading books. You know, you're doing adventurous things. Yeah. Was there a part of you, because I, I definitely had that that time in which I was sort of sowing my wild oats, which was weird because I was also on a kid's television show at the time. So yeah. I, didn't, I didn't quite have the anonymity of youth. Right. But... I, I found, and, and I imagine that all kids had this, but I found that I was of a particular kind where I romanticized Hunter S. Thompson and, you know, kooks and, and outliers. And, yeah. you know, I could say like people like Burroughs and Ginsburg, but I didn't read that shit then. Yeah. I just liked sort of counterculture antiheroes. Yeah. Did you have any of that? Or? No, we didn't. But we were, but, but there, were, there were factions of our group that were actually, you know, underground and counterculture, you right. know, but not, not because they were poets or anything, but it, there were the people that the poets wrote about, you right. know, I mean, in the situations that they wrote about, that was the influence of that, <laughs> the kind of nastiness and, you know, art, art was something that I thought, you know, I, I only thought in terms of, of movies, right, you know, as far as, anything artistic and I didn't call it art I just called them movies you know and what did you what what did, did you love movies and television growing yeah. up what'd yeah what did you love I mean I loved going to the movies I, I watched a lot of movies all kinds of movies my dad used to take me to drive-ins and see movies that were like way above my head and way beyond what I should have been watching at a young age and and but at times also very influential like you know you know, seeing you know, seeing French films and Italian films when I was a kid, and you know, I saw a lot of cinema, a lot of cinema. I mean, mostly American movies, yeah. but but not but not like um, K- 
kids' movies, you know. Like, were you watching? Like, you know, Serpico, French Connection. Oh, yeah, come on. Yeah, all the James Bond movies. And um, you just ate it up. Yeah, all, yeah, all, all, even Cassavetes films, you know, all, all that stuff, yeah. And was there a thought that crossed your mind early on in your teens and whatnot that you would ever be doing this? Like, did no. you, you had no idea? No. Was there anyone artistic in your family? My dad was involved in community theaters. Always. In what way? Acting? Acting, directing, building sets. And so I used to do that stuff with him. Yeah. And as a trade, he did it or he just No, he liked a hobby. Uh, as a hobby, yeah. Yeah. So everywhere he went, he belonged to a theater group. Mm. Yeah. And not to go too like Freudian on this, but, you know, that's me. I wonder, you know, Howard Stern has this great quote about how his father was a radio engineer. Yeah. So he's like, of course I was on the radio because to me it was a way to be heard by my yeah, dad. Was yeah. there any of that for I you? I mean, I think so. I think it's, it's always that. I think, you know, you, the whole thing with fathers is, is, is odd for all of us. I mean, I think you want your father to take notice of you, and then when he does, you want to kill him. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what all sons want to do. And, and, and I think that, that uh, we all want to kill our fathers. And, and so it's, it's, but first you have to be noticed. Mm. Yeah. So for sure, it's, it was that. I mean, I, I, I ran lights. He did streetcar. I ran lights during streetcar for, for his performance. And um, I didn't run lights, but I did the lights. And, uh, um, and I did sound for View from the Bridge. And he used to do this play, The Rainmaker, a lot over and over again like whenever they could whenever he would go to a new a new place they would do Rainmaker and he would always play the lead character in it and stuff that was like his favorite part but you know he wasn't a good guy he was a he was you know he was you know sleeping around and he was he was awful he's an awful guy sure and 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 uh but I didn't know it at the time so I was just building sets and I learned how to you know the you know how to build a set and run lights and run music and and understand the structure of a play and understand how how plays are written mm-hmm. you know and you know it's it's a different when you approach i'm sure you know this i'm sure, you know I'm sure many actors know this is that when you approach uh theater from a tech point of view it brings you in in a very interesting way because you you come it's sort of like coming from the floorboards up rather than walking onto the floorboards you know you're sort of yes. you build the floorboards first you know right and it's a different approach and then eventually if you do end up acting you came from building what you're standing on it's like your foundation you sort of built it for yourself you know it's an interesting approach i've talked to other actors and actresses that started as techies when they were kids and um rather than acting through high school i didn't do any of that right but i did in fact build sets at my dad's community theaters and he did them in florida he did them in colorado he did them here and there and everywhere you know and um you know yeah so i think it has i think he has a lot to do with why i'm i'm an actor but you know then you realize one day you realize well what was i going to do if i didn't do this like what would you have done? Well, that's, you know. Do you ever think about that? Yeah, I mean, as much as anybody else does. I mean, 
Were you good at anything else? I mean, I can. I, I'm a natural art artist. I can draw. I've never taken a a class or anything, but I can just. So I maybe have a you would have figured something maybe. out that way. Yeah. yeah, maybe something like that. Or you know, I love to teach. So it's like maybe I would have been a teacher, an art teacher, or something like that. Probably something like that. If I would have had the um, nerve, you know, if if I would have gotten up enough nerve to actually go into a school and get a degree, you know, but I was very, I was very antisocial for many years of my life. And it, it, uh, so that would have been a tough thing for me to do. Do you think, you know, it's funny to what you were saying before about seeing sort of how the, how the sausage is made and Mm -hmm. understanding it from the floorboards up, like even something as as simple as the casting process when you spend your life as an actor and you're there sort of singing for your supper yeah and then maybe you get a part and then you're on the other side of it where you're then chemistry reading other actors who are going to play your spouse or a parent or a brother or something and it's so revealing for me in the few times that I've had that experience to see how impersonal it truly can be because for me I'd go in and have weeks of prep and and it feels like it goes by in a flash and god it's all so personal but then being on the other side it just might be like ah he just he was fine he just wasn't right and as quickly as they come in they leave your head and they're not thinking about you but god knows I'm thinking about myself as I hang my head on my way to my my hybrid yeah 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 I mean the whole that whole thing for me has been a trip because I, I, the thing, you know, the, my friends, the people that are close to me, actors and actresses that, that know me super well and have done for a long time, the, 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 they are definitely, you know, I am in awe of them in many ways because they have this ability to have a career. Mm which is such a big deal to Huge. be able to know how to do it. Like, they know how to have a fucking career. Sustained. I have, I have no idea how to have a career still. As I'm going to be, you know, I'm, when I'm 58, I'll be 58. But you're, you're the goal. I mean, to like, I imagine whatever you're saying about your friends, we, I can only speak for myself, I look at you and I go, but you're the definition of that, knowing how to have a career, how to sustain, how to do good work for a long period of time. Yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't wish my career on anybody. Why? I would want them to have a much more interesting career than mine. Like for sure. Not that I don't think mine is interesting. Of course. Because I've done some interesting things that, or think I should say, I've done things that have interested me. Mm. You know, and that's. But, um, like for instance. Well, they the Gene Siskel Foundation wanted to give Ethan Hawke an award the other night. So, uh, and I'm friend of I'm friends of Robert and Susan Downey, and they asked me, and they're on the board there, so they asked me to, uh, and they know that Ethan and I are very close, and so they asked me to interview him. So I did an hour interview wow. like this. Wow! But we did it in these comfy chairs with bourbon. In front of like 500 people. I knew I forgot the bourbon. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> in front of like 500 people, right? And so, you know, it, it, I don't get ner- like I don't get nervous. But he he said something during the thing. He said, he said that it's interesting to hear a friend who really knows you, not just a, a peer, but a friend. Um, he said, you know, Vincent's temperature never changes. 
you know, like he can move in and out of a part, in and out of a situation, and his temperature never changes. Um, whereas we'll stand next to each other, and my, I'm up like at 107 fever before we go on, on the stage. Right. And uh, even if what we have to do is crazy, and, and Vincent's temperature is always the same, and when he walks out, you know, so I'm listening to him. He walks out and he does the fucking thing. And, and I'm listening to him say this and I'm thinking, you know, he, I feel so like in awe of him. Really? Yeah, because he is, he's a treasure. Like he is an artist through and through. And he's a novelist, a, a painter, a singer, a songwriter, a fucking director, totally. a writer. I mean, the guy is like a poet. Yeah, he does it all. Like, like a fucking poet. Creator, yeah. Yeah, man. And, uh, you know, some actors are bulldozers. Some are tanks. Some, are, some actresses are, are diamonds, uh, crystals. Some are, uh, are, are just are, are sledgehammers, you know, and... and and abysses, you know, like black holes. Ethan's a poet. Hmm. You know, he's, that's what he is. And so to do this the other night where we just had this real conversation about our lives and about his, his career, you know, it's interesting that, that I've never, nobody's ever said that to me, that my temperature never changes. But, you know, it's, it's something that I, I learned because of method acting, hmm. you know. And it's, it's so, so it, it didn't help me be more social. <laughs> in <laughs> right. fact, worked against that. And, and so the, it's all kind of tied together for me where I've, I've dedicated myself to method acting and to and I've never um up until up until when I started when I had my third well when I had my third child I've been married for 21 years now right it's awesome <laughs> and uh I'm one year in oh nice I'm a fan actually my my anniversary is on Sunday nice so. and you met my wife yeah so lovely yeah she's so lovely and she's you know the best thing that ever happened to me and so the you know, the, only now have I have I started to understand what being social is, even at, in this late stage of my life, and uh, I enjoy it very much. But it wasn't something that I was, that I could have ever done before that. And I think that, you know, a guy like Ethan, he he, because his temperature changes from before he's acting to when he's acting, he he knows, you know, he's. He's not in all the time. He is, you know, like he can turn it he, on and off. He sees a career. He has right. a career in mind. And, 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 it's, and it's, yeah, it's different than anybody else's, but he has it in his mind. He knows what he wants and he knows that he has to do it. And, you know, just like we, we do, we know we have to do it too. But it's a, he it's can a, calculate a bit more. Yeah, it's a different, it's a different thing. And, and I you, think. Do you find that you. In, in a certain way that you're carrying this with you at times that perhaps you you rather wouldn't, that it's sort of like you're at a resting openness or like to say that your temperature doesn't, doesn't change, I guess my question would be, say for instance, you have a scene where it requires, as, as our teacher would say, you to get your RPMs up yeah. because it's violent or extremely emotional. Yeah. Are, are you come the, the, 
30 seconds before action, are you starting where we are right now? And then it just, through your prep comes out, are you... No, I'm starting from... High. Yeah, I'm You're starting, ready to go. Yeah. So you can, you work I'm it up. I'm starting as after I leave the makeup trailer. Yeah, you're building it. Yeah. How do you sustain it if, if, it's, if you're holding it's for like two hours? It's like a song that you... If you're talking about a very particular emotion, let's talk about a particular, a very specific emotion rather than this kind of general thing. Yes. Okay. So if let's say it's humiliation. Mm. And so every, you have to know that every human being that you meet in life, no matter who they are, is one step away from being humiliated. Yeah. Smallest thing. Smallest little thing. Someone doesn't meet you for a high five. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So imagine how close that is to get in touch with. Right. right? It's right there under the surface. It's right there under the surface at all times. And there are, you know, once you have done, you know, relaxations and sense memories and affective memories. I don't do sense memories anymore because I do affective memories. But but I do when I teach, I do them. But, But when I don't teach, I don't do them. Um, but effective, you know, having done so many effective memories and continue to do them, you know, it's almost like you have a file of facts of where to go, who to see, what to touch mm. that makes you feel humiliated. Right. Um, something that's maybe seven or more years ago, but it's just like it happened fucking yesterday. The, the feeling, like you just said, of humiliation is so, so close. But where what what is going to where what is it in your life that you can grab in your mind's eye and hold on to and put against your face in your mind's eye and and let it just drench you in your own humility and and, and your own humiliation and so after doing this for a long time you right. you know you you do that that's what you do and so you start in the in and I start in my dressing room and I and I I make sure that I'm even if I have to talk out loud, I make sure, you know, I just say, you know, I'm I'm open to anything. Like I'm right now I'm open yeah. to anything. You're a vehicle. Yeah. Like I can be like you I could be slaughtered by a child right now. It, it like anything could happen. I wanna be that open. I wanna be so open in my heart and in my tummy and I wanna get out of my head. I just wanna be in my heart and my tummy only. Right. That's it. Do you feel, do you find that certain memories that you've used that you have access to expire in the sense of that something that happened long ago that was ripe, ripe for the, the picking five years ago doesn't have the same effect that it does today? If, it, if it's seven or more years, it usually always stays the same. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's a Strasbourg thing. That I'm... That may be a Clermont thing. I think it's a Strasbourg. Once thing. the pain is there, it stays. If no, it's that rooted. It's seven or more. Anything. It's it's best to explore events that have happened seven or more years ago right. and use those now. Because they're so deeply rooted. Because they're so deeply rooted. It's a rare. It's rare when they'll change. Like when you're doing something like super intense. Let's continue with humiliation. So so I'll. Find, I'll find myself in my chair completely open. And then I'll just go to makeup completely open and completely like this with you. And, and can you carry on with small just, yeah, talk? Yeah, of course, yeah. Really? Just do anything I want. Yeah, I mean, just like this. But I'm not, I'm not in the effective memory. I'm just saying my heart and my tummy are open now. Yes. 
and I'm totally relaxed, and I'm open. I'm here to work. I've le- I'm going to lend my whole self to my job. Right. But can you walk in and start? Yeah. At that point. And talk you, about dogs? Yeah. And crack jokes and yeah. talk shit. And Laurel and Yanni? Yeah. Yeah. You're ready to go. Yeah. Okay. You do anything you want. And uh, in fact, the more, the better. Really? Yeah. Because it keeps you present. Exactly. So now the wrong thing to do would be to not have prepped yourself with, I'm completely open and I'm ready to accept anything. Because once you leave that, once you leave the dressing room and you know you're heading towards set, then you start as you're walking. You know, I, I can do it on my walk from the dressing room or my trailer to set to my chair, from my walking from my chair to the set. I can, um, there are certain things that I can do in my body and the way that my posture is and what I can feel that open myself more and more and more so mm. that I'm, and then I start to, lay in the the coin or the button or the piece of fabric or the person's face or the, her cheek against my cheek or right. and carry that through the whole scene and just speak through that only so it's and i guess my question too is once you're sort of on your way into into this place it's um you know when you're how do you sustain it for if it's, a, you know, you're doing this scene for four or five hours? I mean, I feel like it can be a physical feat at it times. Is, yeah, because I think that actors are lazy by nature. And I think yeah. that, oh, for sure. Right? Yeah. And I, and I think that, and I, I think it's the last thing you want to fucking do is do it again, you know. Right. But, but it is definitely a challenge if you're not going to reach. In other words, you've done it once. Mm. If you're going to do it again, then you have to go completely back to zero again and not reach for something that you just did. Oh, but it felt so good. Right, but it's bullshit because it's not real. Then you might as well just fucking go home. Right. So if you think in your mind, okay, I don't want to fucking do this again. I wish the director would just leave me alone. Right. I'd like to go home now. <laughs> right. You know? And you replace that with, okay, if I'm going to do this again, I have to go back to zero. And then you start doing the work again. You start opening yourself back up. You start seeing, um, you, start, you start to enter the effective memory. You can narrate yourself into it. I do that on sets all the time. You can ask people that work with me. I start talking. I'll start narrating in character in, no i'll just i'll start narrating in, if, if i'm doing an accent or a posture or, right. yeah so it's in character yeah but i'll start i'll start narrating the effective memory out loud even though it may not have anything to do with the scene so you're painting the picture for yourself what i'm does getting that mean? closer to it like i'll be saying like no no i can't do that like no i won't do that i'm sorry i won't do that you can't make me do that i'm sorry i'm not gonna do that I'm not going to do it. Right. You can't make me do it. I'm not going to do it. That's not mine. No, it's not mine. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And and I will and then as I as it, I can start to feel it. Yeah, I can feel it now. Right. And then and, and and so I feel a tingling in my hands and I feel my posture change. And then you just you just let it go and you just start speaking the characters words through that and 
listening at the same time and reacting at the same time to the other, to whatever else is going on. I remember watching you teach and, and, and it's part of the sense memory technique, but what I found fascinating because it's just the a guy was in a similar place where he, in the scene, he's dejected and he doesn't know what to do and he's having such the dilemma and you cut him off and you just said, voice a sound that represents the feeling. Yeah. And all of a sudden he just let out this, oh, mm. oh. And then all of a sudden you said, now just say the lines, but use the ugh. Yeah. And it just was like, and uh, something about verbalizing that sound put this wave over him that dropped him in. Yeah. Yeah. It drops you in. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's, 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 it's much, I mean, you know, one of the most popular things these days is all these people are trying to emulate Daniel Day-Lewis, you know. Right. There's all these you know, actors trying to do that. Um, and Daniel Day-Lewis is a one of a one-off. Like he's like the only one, he's right? The fucking, he's a one-off. One of one. Yeah, he he is. That is what he's found, and he's fucking brilliant at it. He's, but is it that? Uh, my suspicion is, besides being inherently brilliantly gifted, is that no one is willing to work as hard as he does. Like it's a direct benefit because of the insane amount of prep. I feel like he puts in more prep than anyone. I think he does. I, I, I think he does. I think that that it's something that he chooses. He he's the only way he can do it. And he, he worked into that. He didn't always do that. Really? Yeah. And and he found that if he wanted to for him to be easier on himself as an artist, yes. he had to do that. So that he wasn't lamenting on set that he that something had been unexplored or that he missed something. Yeah, yeah. So it comes down to the more you work, you put in, the happier you are when you walk away because you say you you know like you left it on the field. You know you left everything you had on the field. Right. I mean it's you, you have to do that. You yeah. have to do that, and it's why I do what I'm talking to you about because I know I have to go back to zero each time. It's the only way that I can do it again. I'm not going to, you know, I, I, I'll opt out if you ask me. <laughs> right. You know, cause I, you know, I don't want to fucking go through it again. Of course. And, and for me, it doesn't matter if you think it's great or not. It's, it, it is what it is. It, it's, it shouldn't be judged. It's just that it is. It's and, my, it's a performance. It's the best. It's the extent of my talent. And <laughs> and have you gotten over like because I'm working on getting over that whole thing of like that nailing it whatever that looks like yeah you got I killed just, it I nailed it yeah. it's all bullshit well it's all bullshit because it's something it's, it's a projection it's other people's projection mostly right I I remember listening to Steve Martin and he said if I have one great talent it's obsession for the work. Like, I'm willing to just work at it. And so I've had great results from being able yeah. to work harder than most. I mean, you know, the harder you work, the better the job is. <laughs> right. Yeah, the better time you have doing it and the, the more in you are. I mean, it's like something, it's like a scene that's full of joy, like a scene that is like hysterically funny, but like, I mean, that the, that the people are going through the reaction to a situation is is so almost to the point of like blissful it's so funny right and entertaining for them it's the same trip it's except the other spectrum of emotion but it's the same trip you you go fucking insane during it like you you should come out of scenes like with other actors like i stuff i did with tilda swinton and 
I've done stuff with um, Sir Anthony Hopkins and and it, like improvisations and stuff like that. And right. you know, you come out of it and like you fucking look at each other like you know what was that? That was fucking awesome. Fun. Yeah, you're high. Yeah, yeah. And so, but that's also comes from the same thing. Instead, you know, you're bringing in um, something else other than humiliation. You're bringing in. It could be anything that you find hysterical. Like right. nobody needs to know what it is, you know, and something that you felt was was so warm and fuzzy and 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 hysterical at the same time that, that came from whenever in your life. And you can still, as an adult man, enjoy it fully. And that will put you in the in the right place. Do you find that you have moments in your real life where sort of the the silver lining of being an artist and an actor, when you're going through great joy or maybe discomfort or sadness or loss, where there's just the slightest bit of you in the back of your head, you go, ah, got to save this. Got to save yeah. it. I'm going to use it. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's. I mean, but you, but what you're really doing is you're just celebrating the moment. Mm. I mean, like even if because we're actors, we're saying, "Well, I, I would like to use this sometime," <laughs> right? You know. But as human beings, we're just celebrating the moment. Yes. As actors, we're like, "I'm going to use it because that's the way we celebrate the moment." Right. You know. But so that's important. That happens all the time. Like it's it's. It's so important. And, 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 you know, I get things from women. I get things from my children. I get things from dogs and, and chimps. And, you know, it's like ridiculous. You know, it's, um, I'm, I'm, you know, you become a master thief, you know. Right. Every living heart, every heartbeat is completely unique. And, you know, so as far as, you know, this is like where the Stanislavski stuff that I learned. I studied... Before I studied method, I studied Stanislavski. Did you just happen into great training like this, or did you seek it out early on? Just I just happened into Stanislavski. There was uh, there was a woman Sonia Moore, um, who was an actual student of Stanislavski. She was ninety when she was teaching us. Jeez. Yeah, she used to um, uh, bring in her carton of orange juice with half full of vodka. Good for she, her. Yeah, she was. That's awesome. how I want to be at ninety. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, she beat this system of acting. You know, Stan, this is the, you know, the first 10 years of Stanislavski is basically what Harold Clerman and those guys and uh, turned into method, you know. But he got tired of his actors being so indulgent, Stanislavski. And he started working with Bolesovsky and on physical stuff, animals and... and mm. um, using sculptures and 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 so that you would create the posture and if you're duplicating the posture the emotion will come which it does happen it does work right the problem with it is is that it's theater it works in theater yeah it's yeah. a different energy you can't do it in a film but what you can do using the sense what Stanislavski does teach you is it teaches you how important uh, posture is, and being and how to alter your yourself, how to put layers on yourself. Hmm. In other words, never pretend. Always talk within your own voice, but then layer it with character stuff. It's like juggling balls. You know, you can juggle one ball 
to eventually you can get three or four balls in the air while the camera is rolling. You know, that means accent, posture, reaction, acting, text, you know. Right. You know, all of it's going at the same time. And you know exactly what you're doing, you know. And I think that's, you know, I, I find too, and, and I love watching film and TV through my wife's eyes because she has a real affinity for realism. And so sometimes like the yummy things that I'll watch certain performances that are, are lauded but are perhaps a bit theatrical, for lack of a better word, she won't, you know, find the same, uh, she won't find as, as amazing as I do. But then she'll watch a great performance. It's so subtle and nuanced and probably required so much prep. And she'll say, now that's my kind of, yeah. my kind of performance. And, yeah. and you see how much... You know, as you said, when people are able to have four, five, six things going on at one time, and it's uh, it's it's just a different thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's you know, if you look at there's so many great actresses around, you know, but if you look at all the greats, you know, from like Maggie Smith to Meryl Streep to Joan Plowright to you know, just it's just the list goes on and on and on, and then to all the con the more contemporary ones, um, younger good ones that are out there, Jessica Chastain. I mean, they, you know, they're doing that same kind of work. Right. They're juggling many balls at the same time. And, and you know, if, you, if, you're, if you've done that before and you've had practice doing that, you, you enjoy watching it so much because you fluctuate from being told this story that has nothing to do with them right. to enjoying watching their craft you know, what what was the moment when you were a goner? When it clicked in for you, you were like, "Yep, this is this is me for the rest of my life." When I saw uh, the pretty girls that act, <laughs> solid. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> <laughs> and and then and then and then I think that got me into the auditions and stuff to just to hang out with those crowds and then and then I think when I. I don't know. You know, I, I did, I got Full Metal Jacket, right? Right. And I called Sharon once from England and I would call her every once in a while and ask her, you know, I'm 24 years old, you know, and I'd ask her, you know, like, this is what I'm doing. Like, this is the work I'm doing. This is the nursery rhyme that I'm using and this and that. Hmm. And uh, is this all sound, you know, like I'm, you know, on the right track. And she, you know, she's definitely, definitely, she'd say, go to some museums and, you know, uh, watch documentaries on this and that, and she'd give me advice and stuff like that. And all that, all she did, all those things were like her reminders of, remember, you, there's all these other things you can do. You know, there's right. there's many things you can do to prepare for this part. It's not just you and the text. And, and you sent tapes to audition for Full Metal Jacket, right? Yeah. How many tapes? Three. The first one, which was... A monologue from a play I was doing at the time, and then so nothing from the script. They no, just wanted to see no, you. The act. third one was was he wrote. It wasn't from the script, but he wrote two pages of words with no punctuation, and he said, "Film it and send it back." Now you have to remember that back then the cameras were this fucking big, and you had to carry a deck, <laughs> right? You know, so it wasn't a fucking easy task for a twenty-three-year-old. Yeah, it wasn't you know. a self-tape on your phone. No, it was me and my my buddy Steve Marshall who. You know, we 
we were both in a play at the time, but so we rented, you know, this fucking huge camera and set it up on 10th Avenue and 26th Street. And, and I sat on a stoop and we shot it. And, you know, we shot him. You did it outside? Yeah. And did, was that a Kubrick thing where he would have you just read from a play first, like nothing from the script, or it just happened to be No, he just, he, they said, send a tape of something, so I just sent it. I just figured what, you know. And so, and then what's the feedback from your first tape? Send another one? So about three or four weeks passed, and then he called me directly, and... Are you bugging out? Are you like, oh my well, God, I, it's the dude. I immediately hung up on them. I had no... Really? Yeah, because at the time... Hello, I, Vincent. Yeah, it was, yeah, no, he's not British, you know. But he's, like... He's a Jew from the Bronx. This which completely threw, threw me off because I thought that he was British. Right. And, and so this is what happened. I, at the time, was a bouncer. You know, I was a bodyguard and a bouncer when I was that age. And uh, I used to bodyguard for rock stars and other actors. You know, right. da- Danny... Uh, uh, Ackroyd and yeah, you know, many many people and uh, but all the bodyguards I worked with were cops and firemen. And they were all moonlighting and stuff, and they, we were all close. And they would fuck with me all the time. So I right. thought, and they knew everything that I was up to because they knew I was I was the only actor of the bunch. Our bodyguard actor. So I get this call, and they, you know, I, like, it's That's just Ackroyd. them. Yeah, yeah. not no. Ackroyd, but one of the one yeah. of the bouncer, one of the one of bodyguards. Your yeah. And I'm like, fuck you, you know, like that. And then they immediately called back, and it was Leon Vitale, who was his right-hand man. And then, you know, Stanley gets on the phone, and he says, I want you to just, uh," he said, this is, uh, it's going to be tough. Can you, you know, can you put on uh, 10 pounds and then take your shirt off and sit on the same stoop outside and just talk about yourself for a bit, where you're from and stuff like that. Jesus. Yeah, and I said, yeah, okay. And at this time, are you pretty lean? Like, are you... Yeah, I was like yeah. super, super thin. Yeah, gotcha. I was like, uh, yeah. Yo, guys, I'm sorry to interrupt. Look, I'm going to make this quick, and we're going to get right back to the podcast. Because, look, I mean, I wouldn't let you down. Uncle Josh doesn't do that to you. You know what I mean? I make a promise, I keep it. So let's go. Did you know that every single episode of Curious is now on Spotify? Yeah. The same app that has millions of songs now also has thousands of podcasts. Look, on Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones. Just not too many. I get jealous. But look, all you got to do is subscribe to our show, search for Curious, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now and now and now. Let's get back to the show. Who are you? We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The people who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q dot com slash curious and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash curious. That's ListenerQ.com slash curious. So and, what, you hit the donuts. What are we doing? Pasta every yeah, night? Pasta and, yeah, pasta. Yeah, pasta. Yeah. 
and and beer. Yeah. 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 Just it's a good recipe. Yeah. Love Hash it. and anything I could put in my mouth, you know. Perfect. After that. And um so we uh we did that and 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 then he about two weeks later he he said I'm gonna he said I'm gonna send you some words and so then about two weeks after that he sent these words and I sat uh, this time we did it in my the backyard of this I was in I was in Jersey City, I had an apartment in Jersey City and we did it up against this um chain link fence. Because I could tell it was like a, it was, in fact, you could tell it was a training, a Marine Corps training thing. Right. So I just did it at attention against this, you know, chain link fence. And, but, but Steve did the off-camera stuff and I just did the on-camera stuff and we just, we just did it. And, uh, and then I, uh, then I got it. And so... And but but there's one piece of the story missing is that Matthew Modine, who I knew from school and from auditions, we used to help each other with lines in the Central Park and stuff. He was he had got the job already, and I was at I was doing the front door at the Hard Rock Cafe when it used to be on 57th Street, and and he was walking by with his wife one day, and I said, "Hey man, what's up?" You know, and we started talking. He said, "Oh, by the way, there's this one part that's not cast." You should send it. So Matthew's the one that got me the address to send it to. Jeez. I didn't have an agent. And and he immediately wants you to gain weight, right? Yeah. How much? 30 pounds. And then when I gained the 30 pounds, I just looked like I could kick everybody's ass. And so I had to put on eventually almost 80 pounds, just about 80 pounds. Was that the worst or the it best? Was the worst. It was the worst, right? Yeah. yeah. My girl left me. Because you're eating at night. I mean, you got to be. Yeah. It's a full-time I, I was, job. I was not in a good headspace and it's i mean at that time does it i mean but it was free food because they i had like a i think i had a warner brothers credit card and i had a flat in london and dude it was like amazing no better food city really i mean nah. if you want to gain weight right like that's yeah the shepherd's place. pie and yeah, shit. all that shit <laughs> potatoes and cheese and, and dairy this, and at this time kubrick's like anointed right like there's I mean, there's very few. I mean, he's a, yeah. he's on the Mount Rushmore at oh, that yeah. time. So is that intimidating? Are you like fuck? Like my first big game? No, he was very nice to me. I I I went and uh, he I saw him in the distance. They were shooting the Vietnam stuff first, and I saw him in the distance. I saw him uh, and um, I didn't know about monitors and you know the, he was like one of the first guys to use a, a monitor to watch playback. Yeah, and. You know, back then the monitors were like about that big, maybe maybe about like that big, Small. but they were super long. You know, because they had all this stuff, technology <laughs> yeah. behind yeah. it, right? And uh, you know, they had television tubes, and back then, you know, yeah, still it was real shit. Yeah, yeah. So he's sitting, he's, and I see him, I see him, and I go up to the first, and I say, "Can I, can I meet him?" And he, and when I said that, he turned and he looked at me, and he said, he waved me over. And he introduced himself, and he said, "Sit down, watch this with me." And so I did, and and he would tell me what I asked me what I thought, and should we do it again? And I'm like, "Oh, well, you know, like, fuck, yeah, Jeez, do it again. you're like, I'm like, a bodyguard for the Hard Rock Hotel, yeah, exactly, <laughs> like, like, the Hard Rock Restaurant, yeah." Um, and he was so nice to me that he goes, uh, you know, he never talked to me about story, he never talked to me about performance, you know. He wouldn't note you. No. No, he would just, just say do you... it better. All of us, he would just say do it better or do it faster or you you missed your mark and stuff like that. He would say it's got to, you guys 
got to do better than that. Do you prefer that kind of note? Like that I kind prefer of direction? Both. I can, I can, I can do both. I can do actor. Uh, the only thing that I don't like is metaphors. Gotcha. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I feel like if I was directing and I was lucky enough to have you in a scene, I'd be like, I got to relate some. I know I'll use a metaphor. <laughs> I'd be that asshole. I'd be like, fuck. <laughs> I think that, uh, a metaphor is a clear sign that the director doesn't know what the fuck they're doing. Right. But the the ones that talk about story and the ones that talk about heart and and the ones that just need it great, you know, all I'll, I'm into all of that. Like I'll talk, you know, I don't really do a lot of talking, but I like dire- I like to be directed a lot. Like really, yeah, I, you know, like I like a director to come up and say something in my ear uninvited come up and say something that will change the scene for me and or even if they want to yell it across the room like Vincent you can't do that you have to do this I'll be like okay you know like I'm there like I I love it it's uh because I'm so because if you if you don't fucking get my attention I want to go home like I don't my my attention span is so short right that if I feel like I can deliver everything in a couple of takes and then the thing is over. And, and meanwhile, the director doesn't, may, she or he may think that I'm not even close and we have many more takes to do. So, But they haven't articulated it. But they haven't articulated it, so they better articulate it. But then again, if there was like someone of the Clint Eastwood school who can get it in three takes and be happy and it looks I'll good, go home. you're stuck. I'll go home and not, not look back once. And so... And what about reassurance? Like, do you want to be told after, like, that no. was great? You I just I mean, leave it alone. I don't not want to be told. Right. I just... Who doesn't like that? Yeah. Right. Like, if somebody said, wow, that was great, I would think, awesome. Because in the way, they're going like that. Right. And, you know, if you, unless you do theater, you never get this. So... Right. Yeah, it's nice. But you hear, like, I was listening to Josh Brolin on a pod the other day talking about the Coen brothers and how he just said they give you nothing. They give you nothing, yeah. Nothing. My editor that, I, that I'm working with is the Coen brothers editor. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean there's a lot of people like that. Um Paul Schrader is is like that. Paul would say to Ethan, um, "Do you think you can do better than that?" Cuz if you can't, we're done. Wow. And Ethan would go, uh, "No," or "Yeah, give me another one." You know. And it, I feel like it's a pretty clear if you've done the work, it's a pretty clear decision. Like, yeah, there is something yeah. there or no, right. I've, I've Those kind out. of directors that we're talking about right now yes. are the ones that will fire you if you suck. Which is almost better, right? Right? Yeah. I mean, I've like, sometimes, <laughs> this is so wrong because it's my responsibility, which I've learned more and more with doing more work with, with people like Sharon. But I've watched certain takes of scenes that have made it to the final cut and thought, what were you thinking? Why didn't you tell me? Like, why did you say anything? I'm like, oh, how could you like, just the slightest adjustment of like, don't do that. And I would have been like, gotcha. (laughs) Thanks for looking out. You know? I know. It's, 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 it's crazy. That's their job, you know? But, but a lot of actors, a lot of directors don't want to, don't want to get in the way of actors because sometimes actors don't want them to, you know? So, right. You know how it is. Crews are taught not to put their hand in their cage, in the cage, you know, in right. our cages. And, you know, so it gets like that. But in, in directors and in directors sometimes feel a little weary of that. So, you know, I make it clear to the guys and girls that I'm working with that they can say anything to me at any time. And I will never 
you know, I, I even to the even to the continuity girl or guy right. that's on set, man or woman, I will, I'll, you know, come over as much as you want. Speak the line out to me as much as you want. I will never, never diss you for it. It's one thing I love about comedy in the sense of there's a meritocracy to it. And I remember Colin Quinn said, it's the only, it's the closest thing to justice in the sense that <laughs> funny is funny. And if people yeah. don't laugh, it ain't funny. There's yeah. no interpretation. Yeah. So whether it's the highest paid writer or a really funny craft service guy, if somebody's got a great idea and it makes everyone laugh, like, let's try it. Yeah. Because what, like, what are we going to be precious about yeah. it? I was doing this scene. I, I do this character. Wilson Fisk on Daredevil and he's a he's a he's like a Marvel baddie but he's a it's he's an emotional baddie he's not like a gangster typical gangster he's uh he's a he's emotionally he, everything that he does comes from his his humility that he carries around and Deborah Ann Wall who's a wonderful actress this mm -hmm. actress we had a scene together it was like a five-page scene just the two of us and we're she, we don't like each other. And, uh, and to me, she's just, to my character, she's just a little piece of chicken, you know. And, and, and her point of view of me is that I'm just an absolute fucking monster and I belong either dead or in jail. And if she has to kill me, she will, kind of a thing. Right. And uh, at, even at the risk of her own life. And like you're saying with the justice thing, with the comedy, is the same thing happens with drama in that... When, we're do when we were doing that scene with the director's input, with the DP's input, with everybody, props guys and continuity, keeping us on track. And when we, would, when we would do setups and we would leave the set and come back, you felt like they left the tone of the set exactly the same for us when we got back. Right. That's what, it was like justice. Yes. The feeling of that's what we're here for. That's what we accomplish. That's what we get. That's, that's our justice. That this scene is going to exist until we're done with it. Yes. That there was nothing in the air before we started. And now the air is thick with story. Yeah. You're ready to go. Yeah. And when and you can only do that with somebody as good as her. Like, honestly, it's... It's rare. Yeah. Do you... Assuming that everyone, all the actors have done the prep that's required and everyone's shown up to work and then for whatever reason, the scene is off. It's revealed itself now. You're, you know, three takes into the master and you're just like, something ain't right here. Mm -hmm. What do you think? What do you think that is? Well, that's something that needs to be fixed. That's what that is. But is it? Does it tend to be? Is there something off in the script? Is it that it could the be way the it's been blocked? It could be the script. Most likely, it's the blocking. Right. That most feels likely, it's the blocking. Artificial. Yeah. Or, or, or the the beginning of the scene is starting in the wrong place. Right. And so that and that's the first thing that you, the first thing is the blocking during rehearsal, because. In in a play, that's one thing. In a film, it's something else. The the blocking is combined with with shot design and the drama of the storytelling. Yes. Right. So those two things have to meet. And 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 you can start in many ways. Like you can have the actors block it themselves, and you help them along, and then you establish your shots and move them a little here and move them a little there. You know. Right. To find your shots, or if you have a storyboard, 
you tell the actors, this is the shot. So in other words, this is your stage. You have to perform within that. What do you prefer? I do. They're Either both way. so exciting to me yes. to do. I, I mean, I love, I love design shots. I also love inventing blocking. On my show that I did on television, I would do all the blocking. Yes. Like I would block every fucking scene. Like the directors would just sit, sit by and I would block every scene that I was in. So when you do something like Law and Order and procedurals in that manner for, you know, many, many, many seasons, is that the way you keep it fresh and yeah. new is by yeah. challenging yourself because I in never that way? changed the word of the script. I made a deal with the writers early on that I would never rewrite a thing. Was that, that on their request or it was just a No, yeah, I agreement. was told that the first sh- I don't know how it, it it just stayed our routine, but the first writer on that show, Renee Balsay, who's a great crime story writer. Um, probably one of the best we have in America, and and he he uh, he he was very clear that he doesn't like to change things. But up until they get pub, up until it gets published. So in other words, I'm I'm he's he's happy to for me to come to his office, discuss this with him, discuss that. Yes. And a lot of times he I would say I don't understand what what are you saying by this, and he would say, Well, I'm saying this and this and this. I would say, Well, then write that instead, yes. and he would do it. But then once it's published and we have the read, and so then we have the read through, and then any notes after the read through, that's where it ends. Then never, you never change a word on set after that. I think that's weirdly freeing too, because I've worked with certain actors who, for better or for worse, they wanted to rework it the day of when we got to, and I was like, but but we're on a ticking clock here. That's a television show, right? It's a television show. Yes, you know it's. It's, it has to be done that way. You cannot hold up the day. You know? And so because I never changed the word, the blocking to me was everything. Mm. You could change the whole dynamic of a scene with it. You know? So it was very important. Now, on films, it's different. On films, every project is different. So if you're coming in with a writer-director, then it's that writer-director. He's the boss. He's like a showrunner and a director at the same time. And you, all, all changing of any dialogue are discussions with him. And I think that should be done as early on as possible. Other actors feel differently than me, but I feel like get that done so that when you're on set, you just have to think about acting and you'll rely on him or her, the director to show run you and, and direct you. And you don't have to think about that. Yes. Now, when you're doing, working with directors that are, are on a big project, but they didn't write it, you know, but they have this vision, you know, then for me, it's up for grabs. Like Ethan and I will sit in our trailers and we'll rewrite scenes and we'll rewrite other people's scenes. And, you know, uh, and the, the directors love it. You know, they're fucking like, yeah, fucking do that. Or no way. I'm not going to put that in my movie. (laughs) Right. You know, it's like, get out of here. What are you crazy? Or like, fuck yeah, let's do that. You know? Yeah, you're freer to, to... Yeah, and and if you have a good relationship... If you don't have a good relationship, if there's an actor who you can't get... Who's got his head up his ass or her ass... Yeah, then, their own agenda. Then you just you just leave them alone. But as, if everybody works as a team, mm. which is 
the idea when you do a film. Well, you hear that about like Downey's the king of that. You know, Downey because I never met him, but I abbreviate his name. Yeah. But like you, you know, there were stories of him on Iron Man. Just you know, would show up and sit in his trailer and throw away the sides and go, "All right, what are we doing?" Yeah, and then would re rewrite it. And Favreau, being yeah. the smart filmmaker he, he is, would say, "All right, yeah. we'll make it yeah. work." I think Downey's fucking excellent at that. You know, he, we would do that on on uh, the Judge when we did the Judge together, and. Um, and I would also say, so what about, I would say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to say this here and he's going to go do it, do it, do it. So I would do it. He goes, okay. And then he would say, no, well, wait, wait, wait. And the director is there. Right. And he goes, no, but try this, try this instead. And, I, and then I would do it that way. And everyone's going to think, and I go, well, I think I'm going to back up a little bit and do both of them actually. And then I would do them both. He goes, okay, well, this is fucking working now. You know, right. and, uh, and, but never have I worked with anybody as close in that kind of situation as I have with Ethan, because Ethan is, I, I mean, I think I'm a pretty good writer. Robert's a good writer. Ethan's a great writer, right. and and he and he can, the the two of us can figure a scene out like wildfire. Especially if we're in it and in this and we're acting in it ourselves, and and we we're in the movie a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. like we we're feeling the movie by now. You know the guys. You're ready yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there are I won't name projects or directors, but. I mean, it, it just, it's again and again, the, the material that we've written, when I see his performances, I know that he's written whole scenes himself. Wow. Yeah. So what do you do when we, and I feel like we've all had this experience where all the intentions are great and it all seems good on paper and then you show up on the day or something's revealed early on or halfway through where you're like, this director doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. It's going to happen. What do you do? How do you, how well, do you protect your ass? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you're you're in trouble. Yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah, you're in trouble. So you have to you have to just you have to know that you have to stop acting like an actor, and you have to start acting like somebody who is a protector of the script, mm. the a knight. The script has now has a knight in shining armor to yes. protect it, and you become this kind of advocate for the script, and that's the only clean and honest way out of a situation like that without making anybody feel bad or hating the director so bad you want to kill them, right? Or getting or you know, and just let the chips fall the way they do. I mean, there's really nothing you can do. Does it change your performance at all? It you, will change your performance. You're less yeah. willing to take risks, right? Because you're not quite. You don't trust their taste. I mean, that I can. I'm only speaking for me, but I've found that may, when I've truly trusted someone, I've been willing to have one of those takes that probably was a bit too far one way or the other, knowing that the one after that would be dialed in, but I needed the one before to get there. Well, that's maybe because you care too much about Probably. what... I think it might be because you care too much about, about what people think. Definitely. <laughs> okay. So that's the first thing that you got to just get rid of. Yes. If you become the guardian of the script, then you approach the director and you say, look, this is the story that's being told here. This is what I'm going to do. Like, this is what has to be done. If you want me to sit over there and do it, I'll do that. If you want me to stand on my head, I'll do that. If you want me to, to be angry, I'll do that. Anything you want, I'll figure out a way to do it. But as long as we do not deviate from the story that we're telling. Yes. And if, and if what they're saying to you actually, like, for real, 
clips the story in some way or, or denigrates the story in some way, then you just have to put your blinders on and you have to just do it. And then they say, well, no, that's not what I was thinking. You say, oh, well, what were you thinking? And then they tell you, and then you just do it again. You <laughs> right. Just, like Double you down. have to not care what, right. what they're going to think. Now, and just but to- that's so rare. Right. But it does happen. You're right. You're in trouble when that happens. Um, by the way, they're in trouble too. You know, like everybody's more, in trouble. By the way, they're probably in more trouble. More trouble, yeah. To be honest. Yeah. And just to go back to Kubrick for one second, you know, you hear stories about him in, you know, like on The Shining and how he coaxed performances out of Nicholson and more so, you know, Shelley. And did you see any of that when you were doing it? No. No. He just was totally affable and. Yeah, I mean, he would get pissed at actors for not knowing their lines. And there was one actor that fucked up pretty bad one day. And there was also another actor, which I would have never expected to fuck up, did. And he got his ass handed to him Wow. for not knowing his fucking dialogue. And it was a lot of dialogue, granted, but we had weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, to learn it. Yes. So he had no excuse other than oops, you know. But... No, I, nobody on that show needed a performance coaxed out of them. Everybody was young and ready, and we came from a generation of actors before us that were fucking hot, you know, right. and, and we wanted to be the next generation. Like, you could not fuck with us. Like, there was not a lot of us either, as yeah. many as there are now. <laughs> yeah, you were ready to go. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess, I mean, because you work with Robert Altman, and I mean, like the greats, the truly great directors, is there a through line that you have noticed or one or two traits that they all possess that you think leads to their greatness or why they are so good at what they do? I guess it's they've been allowed somehow or they've they're somehow figured out a way to do things the way that they do them and not anybody else that they've figured out somehow to get away with it, to be able to do, tell stories the way they want to, not the way they've seen other people do it, and that people trust them to do that. That's tough, man, that's hard to do. Yes. You know, you have to be, you know, you have to have thick skin and you can't, you know, you have to have good scripts and, and good, you know, and, and luck to get that. You know, because those two guys that you're talking about, Kubrick and even Oliver Stone and guys like that, they're all very unique human beings and they do not make films similar to each other. Like it, their, their, their approach to filmmaking is completely them. Yes. You know, like Altman was completely different than anybody had ever worked with before as, as, as most are. You know, he would walk around set with a half a joint in his pocket and... You know, I would always make sure that I was near him at the end of the day so I could have his joint that he didn't finish. And, um, <laughs> yeah, cool and, down after a long day. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, he was, you know, had a very different approach you know, than, they, and, than, than these other guys. So I think, I think there's just the idea of them being able to get in that position. Hmm. It makes them completely unique, and I think it helps their storytelling a lot. Because it's coming from their own shit. Yes, I you know the the great experiences that I've I've had with a director. I found that they it's kind of parental 
to me in a sense of like where I felt safe enough to try the things that I wanted to try. And yet I knew that there was a governing force behind me that's that if I went too far left or too far right, that they would just sort of rein me in that I was like being protected and like a parent would want their kid to have experiences and feel emboldened to try things. But inevitably they're going to make sure that they don't burn their hand or, you know, get caught. Right. And, and so there was like sort of an ease about it where I knew that if I had a better idea or something revealed itself, that we were going to honor that. But no matter what, they had a plan and we were going to stick to that, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a good director. Yeah. You know, it's, You know, they're everything. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I think that writing is everything. It's know? everything. And, and so, but, but when the writer is gone, you know, and you're doing, and you're making a movie and, and, and a play, um, those first few weeks, man, you're really relying on their direction right. a lot. I want you to, I've quoted you now a few times, even on the podcast and to friends. So I want to tell you the quote so you can correct me. So I don't plagiarize you incorrectly. When I watched you teach in class, something you said that was such an aha moment for me was you said, there is a hook to every scene. There's an intent, a clear action for you as your character. Your job is to find it. And inherently great writing makes it hard to find because it's in subtext and nuance and in action and things that you really have to analyze to find it. But it's there. And we're the detectives. It's our job to find it. Yeah. And for me, that's been so revealing because I'm grandiose and I watch great performances or someone who just reads text and I go, why can't I find it immediately? Why doesn't it just yeah, you can't leap find out? It immediately. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, you, the... The, the way to it, or one of the ways to it, is to just keep asking why. You know, why am I saying that? Why are they saying this? Like, why? For what? Why am I saying this now? Mm. Like, why don't I say this sooner? Or why do I wait and say that? Why? Like, and, 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 and try and answer that question. Like, don't pass it over. Try yes. to ask each and every why question and try and answer it. And and that that will take you so close to text. Yes. That the you'll bump into the hook. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'll uh, I'll only keep you for a few more minutes. Quickly, one thing I don't think you get enough credit for this performance, and maybe you do, but I think because it was sort of a big action movie, people didn't really give you all the props for Men in Black because that is a fucking incredible <laughs> performance of like. Deep, deep character work of and a transformation of what you did for that movie. I mean, will you just give me like the quick thirty to sixty seconds of how what that process was like? The process was to I had to figure it out. Sonnenfeld wouldn't let me talk about acting. I had to before he hired me for the job. He made me promise I wasn't going to talk to him about acting during the during the why because uh, that's the way he is. He's okay, awesome. he's awesome by the way. Yes. I just saw him recently. He's, he's exactly the same way he was when we, when we were working together. He's like, we're gonna, he wanted me to come in and do a thing for um, the, that TV show that he does now, the, the Netflix thing. He does uh, the unfortunate series of unfortunate events. Yeah. Yeah. And he wanted me to come in and do something, the final episode of that, but I couldn't because I was doing this other thing. But 
anyway, so I love him to death. And, 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 but no, I did actually have to agree to that, that we were not going to speak about acting. So I had to go off and invent this alien guy, this guy that was this alien that took over this body. And so, um, you know, I, 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 uh, I first I started watching all these bug documentaries and stuff, and they were just so boring I almost killed myself. <laughs> and then uh, I was walking by a sporting goods store, and I saw these two basketball braces, knee braces. And I immediately went in and I bought them, and I bought some masking tape at the hard, uh, some duct tape at the hardware store, and I, I. Folded, I bent them and duct taped them off so that I couldn't move my legs. So my legs were always bent. And, and I just started to walk normal, and that's how I came up with the walk. And then, cool. and then the voice is George C. Scott and John Huston's voice combined. Cool. Yeah. And, and, and just because it sounded right to you when you did it? George C. George, if you ever watch Dr. Strangelove, George C. Scott's performance is like, when you watch it now, it's like, what the fuck is he doing? It's like crazy, over-the-top weirdness. But he has this voice that he talks like this all the time, you know, like that. Right. And so, and John Huston has a voice which, you know, um, uh, for whatever, pawn skull. Growl. You know, right. You know. and, and it couldn't be that languid. So I combined the two so that I could be, I could say pawn scum, and, and, but it's pawn scum. You right. Know, like, so I can always feel them inside me, you know the imitation of voices, you know, two of them. Yeah. And, uh, and that's it. And the rest was just riffing all the time. And, and when I, you showed up on set with all this prep, were he, like, he was totally freaked out by it. Uh, what about like Will he and Tommy Lee set. Jones? Were they like, they Oh never shit spoke to me. Really? Yeah. Well, you first had... of all, I couldn't see them cause I had these back then, the, they hadn't completely figured out the whole, contact lens thing so yes. when they colored your eyes you really couldn't fucking see jesus yeah so um but they were nice to me and I mean, they were both very nice to me and stuff and and since the movie will and i have have talked about it and stuff but i my scenes were very kind of uh you know uh 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 you know, different from other scenes. Like they were, we, when it was the bug day, we would just do that. Right. And they would come in and out of it. And the, but we'd never, you know, cross paths really. Yeah. You guys much. weren't hanging out at the snack table. No, no. I was in makeup for nine hours a day, nine hours. Yeah. And then I would Jesus. work for three hours and go home, you know? Oh man. Yeah. But it was, it was intense. It was fun. And, and now that you're, you know, you've, you've, been directing for a while and and you recently wrapped a film that you're you're finishing now what has as as a director what what has um i guess my question is like have you learned something new about acting or has it revealed itself in other people's performances as you being sort of the captain of the ship now or is it sort of all the same no it's not all the same i i it's not really like i don't really think of it that way though this is how i think about it i think like so I'll watch people doing things and I think, wow, you know, like this is where we are. Like this is what we are, are accepting these days. Like this is not good. Really? And so, yeah. Like, yeah. I, like if I like, see, I see that on television sets too. Because and, and it's just conversational. It's just not fucking interesting. And, right. You know, and it's not, it's not coming from anything real. It's just really good pretending. Yes. You know, which is great, I guess. But Sounds it's, it's not, natural. It's not something that I want to direct. I don't want to direct really good pretending. I want to direct 
really great acting. Right. You know? So as a, as a director, like the, like the, like directors did with me, I tried to, I tried to influence them before, during, and after each particular scene. And, and sometimes before the shoot, even try to influence them in ways that they won't forget. Right. You know, and I, and I find that actors that age from like kids to like my age, that if you're open and honest with them and fair minded with them and, and make them understand that, that you love them because we are the same. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and we are the herd. We're all in it together. Yes. And if you can establish that and hold their hands, like literally take their hands in your hands and hold their hands and make them understand that you're, you're there with them, then, you know, they're going to listen to you. They're going to, they're going to accept what you have to give them. And so, and so I'm, so with Ethan Hawke and Chris Pratt and Dane DeHaan and Jake uh, Schur, you know, I was able to approach every actor, no matter what their ability was in exactly the same way. I could talk through them. I could talk through scenes with them while they were acting. I could talk to them while they were acting. Right. You know, and, and so that, cause we had 20 days to shoot a big Western and, and these, we trusted each other so much that I was able to speak to them while the camera's rolling, while they were in the scene. And, and it's just becomes this every day you show up at work, you know, and, and you just, you're just in this thing, this story that you want to tell. Yes. And you want to tell it emotionally and, and enter in an entertaining way. And, and everybody just, um, you know, so everybody's holding hands all the way through it. I know this might sound mushy and stuff like that, but you're actually, while the camera's rolling, you are inventing story like like a motherfucker. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's so, it's so right on, and it speaks to the whole parenting thing that we were saying before, is like, anytime that I've had a great experience working with a filmmaker, I believe they were a fan of mine. Mm. Like, and not at a superficial level, like they wanted me to win. Mm. They liked when I tried things. And, and so to your point, and and obviously that's my own stuff to work on, which added to the list of like (laughs) (laughs) not being overly worried about what people think and, and, and getting validation that way. But yeah, you feel like, God, this guy wants me to win. And I want to win for him. I mean, if you can compartmentalize, like, I honestly believe that if you care, if you, if you keep yourself, your heart open for your wife and your children, if you keep your heart open for your family, if you keep heart open, your heart open and your mind open for society and humanity, be a motherfucker when you're an actor. But if you're an asshole during all those other aspects, then fuck you anyway. <laughs> yes. Okay. But if you can give your life to everybody in it as much as you would hope they would give it to you, in your acting, you have to be steadfast. You have to be unencourageable. You have to be a fucking giant. You have to be. You are a storyteller. You have the right to do that. Nobody can take that away from you. 
you have this innate right at birth to tell stories if you choose to. And you need to be a motherfucker when you do it. And you, can, and you only let the good ideas in. And you have to trust that you know what they are. That's it. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> Can't thank you enough, man. This was awesome. So appreciate you. Uh, no, more, no problem, dude. Thank you. Yeah, of course. That was it. That was Vincent D'Onofrio. Dude, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, what, what an honor it was to be able to sit with him for an hour and just soak it up. You know what I mean? This is why I do this. To talk to people like him. To get those, those treasure gems I was talking about in the intro. Those mental treasure gems that just make me want to be a better actor. And make me want to put in the work. Pretty special, really special. Anyway, guys, Jesus, have an incredible week, weekend. I'll see you the week after, every Tuesday, Curious Podcast. What are you doing right now? Are you on your commute? I know I say that every week, so what's up? What, are you keeping track? What, are you proud of yourself? Listen, you in your car? I like to eat in my car. Yeah, <laughs> getting real honest here. I eat in my car, and there are crumbs, crumbs everywhere. But you know what? So what, right? Fuck it. What am I going to do? I'm driving. There are very few pleasures that we have in life, like true pleasures. And I get within that confined little automotive box of mine, you know, with the glass windows where you can actually see everything I'm doing. But so what? I feel alone and private. And I drive and I eat some sort of, listen, it doesn't have to be, by the way, like a car safe food, like a French fry or a chicken tender. I'll eat a salad in the car. I'll have utensils out, driving with my knees, pouring dressing on the salad, eating. Why not? You know, listen, that's not safe. And I'm not, I don't want to publicize that perpetuated. You know what I mean? But look, sometimes you got to eat salad and drive on Santa Monica Boulevard while listening to Mark Marin or Joe Rogan. I'm into I'm really into the Lance Armstrong podcast as of recently. Go listen to that. That's good shit. He's a very smart guy. And also I think he got a fucking raw deal. But nevertheless. Alright guys, have a great week. What else? I want to leave you with something important. Oh, I got it. As you are, you are enough. Mic drop.